0: Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 11. All of a sudden they learned that through play, and if you don't label a kid
1: and don't look at what the kid can't do, but you look at the kid as a kid,
0: then all of a sudden the magic and the science of teaching kick in. You're listening to the Jabbadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hey, 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 what is going on, everyone? I hope you are staying safe and healthy and that you are finding ways to keep your mind safe and healthy as I know some of you are uh, back to school for a couple days or a couple weeks and just figuring this whole thing out uh, virtually for most of us or hybrid or whatever it may be. Um, Just I hope that you are finding ways to keep your mind in tip-top shape for your students. I had such a fun time talking with Dr. Mark Alter today. Uh, You can tell in his voice he's, he's just a fun guy. He's got such a jovial personality. Um, and when I was chatting with him, he actually uh, he had his Zoom virtual background on. So as soon as he came up, uh, his background was actually a picture of, uh, you know, those those wooden eyes and nose and mouth that you can get that you nail to uh, tree stump. That was his background. <laughs> so it made the tree look like it had a face. So if you hear him mention, he does mention it in this episode that there's a tree behind him. That is what he is referencing. (laughs) So, uh, just from that, you can tell that he's he's a fun guy, and you can tell in the in his voice that he has such a passion for education. Uh, And he's actually been working with individuals and students with special needs for literally his entire career. First job out of college was in this field, and his career now has taken him. All over the world, uh, working in multiple countries, and if if you see on the cover art for this episode, that's actually a picture of him leading a teacher education session in Romania, which is just super cool. In this episode, we dive into uh, just special education, uh, not necessarily as its own entity, as much as we really dissect how uh, it is, or, or rather how it should be, an intervention to the general education classroom we talk about uh, the history of special education and really in how some areas we've excelled and other areas we haven't really grown much at all and worse in some instances how history is repeating itself and we're going back to things that didn't work really well the first time we tried it so he really challenges us to shift the way that we think about and look at special education, which is um, such a cool conversation. So I hope you get some great value out of it. As always, everything that we mention in this episode can be found on our show notes page. You can find them by going to jabeducom slash show 11. That is jabbed dot com slash show with the numbers one one. And last but not least, before we dive into it, uh, we have a Facebook group that is a small group right now, but we're really hoping to grow it to a thriving community that is all about moving education forward through evidence-based research. So uh, if you would become a part of that community, we'd love to have you. You can find us by going to uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo, or there's a link to that community on our show notes page. Again, jabadoo.com slash show 11. All right, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Mark Alter. We have on the Jabadoo Education Podcast today, a professor of educational psychology. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Teacher Award from the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development at New York University. He was named one of the top 50 most influential professors in education by education.org and has led multiple international teaching events. Wow, what an introduction that is. Dr. Mark Alter, thank you for coming on the Jabbadoo Education Podcast. How are you? I'm great,
1: and thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. Uh, Thank you for being willing to do it over Zoom. I think so many people are so Zoomed out right now, but (laughs) I appreciate it. Different time. Oh, it is a different time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Take us back to uh, the beginning. Your uh, schooling experience. Um, coming through. What were maybe some of uh, your the, the teachers that influenced you, and and what kind of took you on the path that you are on?
1: Wow, what a what a question. <laughs> uh, I wasn't ready for that one. Um, so I grew up in in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx. Uh, I went to public school in the Bronx, PS fifty six. Went to junior high school eighty on Meshula Parkway. Went to D. Wood Clinton High School, an all boys high school. Um, so I'm a product of the New York City school system, uh, and it was some very interesting experiences that I think shaped what I believe today in the work that I've done. Uh, so I grew up in a public school system in a working-class neighborhood, and never saw a kid with a disability. So interesting. And in this, so I grew up. I uh, went to public school in uh, in the '50s and okay. the '60s. And uh, never saw a kid with a, with a disability. There wasn't much diversity either mm-hmm. in the schools. So it was a, uh, a conditioning. It was a way of thinking. It was a way of behavior. And the way I, I grew up uh, playing ball in New York City schoolyards, it was quite an incredible uh, time because the schoolyards where we learned everything. We learned <laughs> about girls. We learned about how to date. We learned this. And we played ball. But most importantly, what we learned was it didn't make a difference who you are. It was who can put the ball through the basket. Because if you lose a game, you sit for an hour and a half. You lose a game, you can be losing money. And so there was a certain culture in the city, and there was a certain culture of the growing up. Um, summers, I, I, I worked in camps as a lifeguard. I was always around working with kids, and there was this, uh, uh, just a lot of fun. I never looked at it as being a teacher, but it was just a lot of fun. So I went to college. I graduated with a, a degree in psychology. Uh, who knows what to do with a degree in psychology? Uh, and You figured uh, it out. <laughs> I, I think, Well, I, that's really a good question. I, I don't know. If, I, don't, I haven't decided if I figured it out yet. Uh, but I needed a job, and someone recommended the um, Association for the Help Retarded Children. Uh, was looking for uh, for people. So I said, why not? Let me go, I'll go visit. Kids, sounds good. I went to visit the program and I fell in love. Mm. And it was kids with very severe and profound disabilities. And to this day, even when people ask me, why do I enjoy working with kids with such severe disabilities? I don't see the disability. It's there, mm-hmm. kid with physical a kid, kid with cerebral palsy, a kid with spina bifida, kid with that. That's it's not that I don't see that, but since that day, it was always a challenge to figure out how to get this kid, knowing this kid can learn, how do you build a program with physical and this was before the federal law, mm-hmm. how do you work with OTs, PTs, parents? And I didn't know I wasn't trained as a teacher at undergraduates in psychology. So the environment was right. But there was a lot of things going on at that time. And I think it's important. I directed the first pre-K program in the city, the AHRC, um, birth to three, all the kids died by the time they were five Mm or six. But if they weren't in these programs, they would have ended up in Willowbrook, the state institution. And every state has had an institution. Um, So while I was working, I started as an assistant teacher. I'm a great toilet trainer, even though I never changed my own (laughs) kids' campus, or my grandkids, but I was a good toilet trainer and working with kids. And there was an excitement to teaching. There was an excitement to figuring out what to do next. Um, But I was learning a lot because I was growing up at a time professionally Mm -hmm. When, we, when people were placed in institutions. So when I went for my graduate work, I ended up going to Yeshiva University. My field trip was to Willowbrook, an institution. Gotcha. Okay. And then we're coming out of the Vietnam War, we're coming, the federal laws were being passed. Matter of fact, Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania case was critical. I believe it was 1972. It was the Park case, the Pennsylvania Association for Retarded Citizens. The state of Pennsylvania was given one year to identify all kids with a disability, all kids who are not receiving an appropriate education one year, find them, place them and put them in schools. So it was a very exciting time because we were closing the institutions mm-hmm. and we were mandating that, that society assume the responsibility for educating kids. And my professor at that time at Yeshiva University, Herb Goldstein, was the court master in the Park case. So he'd come back from Pennsylvania and we would find out all these really exciting things. And then we heard that a law was going to be passed called the Education for All Handicapped Children, 1975. So here we are, we're graduate students, seven, eight of us, sitting around a table with Herb Goldstein. And we thought this was the greatest thing to ever happen. You sit down around a table, the parent, the kid, OTPT speech, principal, and you put together a plan for one kid, <laughs> regardless of expense. Yeah. We said, wow, and you can go into a, a classroom just with kids with disabilities, you can go into general, you can go anywhere, it was called a continuum. This is 1975. So here we are with doctoral students. We're excited about this stuff. We're saying, man, we can't screw this up. This is everything the books talk about. This is all the theory. You plan, you speak to parents. We close these damn institutions. We're going to open up group homes. We're going to prepare kids in early childhood. Sesame Street was putting on kids with Down syndrome, kids who were deaf, and kids who were blind. The federal government was funding integrated early childhood programs wow so now john since we don't have you know a, a year to have this interview let me jump <laughs> ahead and now all right and I'm, and I'm working on an article with a colleague and we look back there's been no substantive change we've grown there are close to six million kids with disabilities new york city has 250 over two hundred fifty thousand kids with disabilities we don't see, if you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, what you see is the scores are flat. But hidden all that data, it's not special ed. It's not only special ed. It's general ed. And I think that's what's gotten me to this point in the work I do internationally and what I certainly argue for. I think the biggest problem is that we've created parallel systems. And I think Kevin Cosner said it best in uh, field of dreams you build it and they 'll come yeah. so if we set up a system called special ed, we set up a system called bilingual. We set up these systems, we staff them, we program, and what happens is that it 's hard to go back and forth. There should be one educational system that is prepared to handle variability gotcha
0: yeah, and I think uh, it, i mean i I might be wrong here, but is the you reference the article that you'd wrote it was that the cloak of competence yeah yeah i read through that and i was like wow he's a little frustrated
1: (laughs) yeah well i've gotten better you you know you're catching me at a different stage in my career uh (laughs) but i get angry and i've been meeting it's interesting the last couple of weeks i've met with parent groups you know and they asked what, it's fa- fascinating. What should we do? And it's the same questions we had in 1975. And I think, and one of the reasons I stay in teacher education, I think the key to all this is the teacher. And I think that the only profession that has been delegated the responsibility to prepare a citizen with a sound basic education, with the skills needed for civic responsibility, community involvement, gainful employment. Is teacher, and I think that teachers' hands have been tied. I think, and I, I, think it's a very serious issue. I think class size is a major issue. I think that teachers don't have time to differentiate. I mean, we have the words. I mean,
0: oh, you can yeah. throw out you the got, you got the words, you got the research, you got the definitions, you got everything that you need, and yeah, I think. I mean, I think there definitely has been, at least recently, a shift from data to personal. Right. I think that that's, you're, you're seeing that a little bit, maybe, um, you know, no child left behind kind of the, the after effects of that and being so hyper-focused on testing and now kind of sw- swinging the pendulum back the other direction and saying, you know, what, you know, teachers are humans and, and students are humans and there's human aspects to it. They're not just numbers. Um, and I, I, in my, my perspective, I think we're starting to see a shift in that direction, but.
1: Well, I, I, I think,
0: um, I think that no child, when no
1: child left behind came out, and the whole movement towards standardized tests and the consequences. And, and I'm not an advocate for stand. I'm not an advocate for any test that doesn't give the teacher information regarding what to do. There you go. I it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever to spend so much time, so much effort, so many resources. And the teacher does not get back information. See, I Especially think when too, it's
0: 18 months later that they get the information back. Ab-
1: absolutely. And, 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 and you don't know what to do with the information. So why do it? Yeah. Other than to penalize the kid or the teacher, there are, no, there are no benefits to standardized testing. However, let's take a step back before no child left behind. And let's ask the question, have the schools in the United States delivered the product, have they provided the society with a skilled workforce, people who are literate, people, and I'm not saying everybody should go to college. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, the carpenters, the electricians, the plumbers. Years in the late 50s, in early, up until the early 60s, New York City had the best vocational education program in the country. What happened to them? The job, weren't jobs. So kid threw, the dropout rate was probably greater in the 50s than it is now because people went, there were jobs. So I think the question is, have we been accountable to the society to produce citizens, good citizens, mm-hmm. solid citizens, however you want to define that? And I think it was the armed forces And it was corporate America that turned around and said, you're giving us people and they can't read. This is not special ed, by the way. Yeah, this is just general ed, yeah. This is just, keep in mind, when I mentioned the NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Education Progress, and that the special ed scores are in the toilet, there has not been substantive change in, I think, five to 10 years in general ed, which is a condemnation of the educational system. Yeah. So it's not special ed that's broken. What you have is an educational environment that's not meeting the needs of the consumer, that's not preparing kids with the life skills that they need in order to be productive citizens. And when you look at No Child Left Behind, in addition to building in the high stakes testing, which I think was a serious mistake, they also had another component. It said every child in the United States is entitled to a highly, to a a highly competent teacher as defined by the States. So I think that's a rather interesting thing that we had a mandate, (laughs) a highly competent teacher. I I think it's nuts. Yeah. That, that we had to say every kid should have a highly competent teacher. Now you come to New York and New York, I think has really a great model. It says, um, First of all, especially with regard to special ed, you first have to have a base certificate in general ed, either early childhood, childhood, or middle school or high school, and then special ed is on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. And then many of the institutions did a integrated, an integrated program. So that's a real significant change because I am a certified teacher of the mentally retarded because in my era, we certified by category and by label. So you were LD, I was mental retardation. What scares me is history is repeating itself and we're coming back to the labels, which places a ceiling on the kid and a ceiling on the teacher. But that's another, maybe gotcha. another, a little later on. Um, so it says highly qualified. Now what's strange is that you go to another state, they have different criteria. Yep. You go to another <laughs> <laughs> and you start saying, hold on a minute. What is a highly qualified teacher? Well, we can have all old uh, yeah, that, that's
0: That discussion has been going in circles for years and years and years, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. But I think what's missing in the discussion
1: is what are the conditions that teachers need in order to use their skills? So what happened, and I think a second part to that is no teacher education program that I know, of, including my own at New York University, prepares that teacher with all the skills, all the knowledge to start off day one and be a master oh, teacher. No. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're an educator. Yeah. So I think there has to be a seamless relationship between pre service and the in service type of work that teachers do. The reading should continue. There should be book clubs. I'm not an advocate for professional development on a Saturday morning or at three o'clock where you get bagels and Danish and a (laughs) cup of coffee and the evaluation said, did you have a good session? And they evaluate the bagels. If you want to know if somebody learned something, follow them into the classroom. If you want to teach a teacher how to form groups, how to do project-based learning, how to do classroom management. Go into that teacher's classroom and then show them, you know, you got thirty kids. In the university, Mm. we're talking about it not theory, but we're saying this is how you do differentiation. But to do it with thirty kids who may speak four different languages and ten kids may have an IEP, go into that classroom, work with the teacher, and only leave when the teacher says, I'm ready and I know I know how to do this. So what's happened is that we have not given teachers the environment and the support structure that enables them to teach.
0: Yeah. I think that that support structure is probably the, the largest uh, disparity that I personally have um, just had experience with just coming in as, as a first year teacher. And I, I worked out in Colorado for three years and I was the music teacher from our, our building and I didn't really have any connections with any other music teachers in in the town that I was working with. You know, I was kind of wow. out on my own a little bit. And you kind of, yeah, it's 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 quite the quite the learning curve as as a first year teacher. Um, so look at this profession, which I think is one of the most difficult professions.
1: uh, uh it's. I'll tell you a little story because I have this. I had this discussion with my daughter, who's an emergency room doctor, mm. and I said it's more difficult being a teacher than being an emergency room doctor. Well, well, (laughs) she says she deals with life and death. I said, well, wait a minute. Not every case is life and death. I said, but let's look at what a teacher does and what an an emergency room doctor does. And I said, remember, I'm talking as an outsider, so I'm going to take a guess at this. So she says, I said, okay, you're you're in the ER room. She's in a New York City hospital. I said, you're in the room. There's a waiting room. Somebody comes in and they've already been seen by somebody. Then you have residents, you have interns, you then make a judgment that this person needs an MRI, you call the radiologist. If they have a broken bone, you call the orthopedist. If they're off the wall, you call the psychiatrist. If you need to take blood, the nurse probably takes the blood. So you are making decisions, but you have a support team that works with you in order to to follow through on your decisions, and then you're responsible for those decisions because you have been adequately staffed to give you to allow you to do that. Yeah. Now let's take a teacher. I said elementary school teacher can have 30 kids in a classroom, with enormous variability, not just demographics, language, behavior, yeah, you name it. You name it, you got it all. No matter where you go in the country, you're going to have variability. You don't have access to a social worker. You don't have access to a psychologist. You don't have access to a professional developer. You are with these kids from 8 in the morning to 2.30, and you're told, teach them. And you're given a curriculum. And you're told the kids are going to get tests. And you're by yourself. And many times, and in many schools, teachers can't say, I don't know. There's an underlying current. You can't say, I don't know. You say you don't know. Is there the support system in place to help you out? So I said, and the teacher is doing this five days a week by themselves. Yeah. Handling every problem. So I got it to bend a little bit.
0: (laughs) You're you're preaching to the choir here. You don't have to convince me. (laughs) But, but I, I think,
1: John, the point is so when you ask about when I wrote Cloak of Confidence and some of the art of the frustration is why. The research is very clear. Let me just give you one other example because yeah. it's one of my favorites. You take a middle school or a high school teacher in this country. They'll have a, a register of 30 kids, five sections, 150 kids that they are responsible for. That middle school or high school teacher gives that kid a writing, a writing task kid writes three pages it's nothing now with a computer yeah that's 150 times three that's 450 pages one paper yep when is the teacher supposed to read it for the grammar for the content and meet with the kid on an, with on an individual kid? basis yeah that's right yeah i i i mean it doesn't make sense <laughs> and yet
0: go ahead well, i was just we've we've had the conversation at at uh between some of my colleagues and and whatnot, just the stations over, you look at uh, corporate structures even, if you want to create a parallel, corporate structures typically have, you know, 8, 10, maybe 12 people who report to one person, right? At a school though, you might have 50, 60 people who all report to the principal. And just that huge uh, undertaking that the principal has to to be responsible for everyone in his building is almost... Uh, you know, uh, a huge ask as well, as far as administrative personnel go. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I, I think that the uh, this, this coronavirus situation uh, is really demonstrating how vulnerable and how uh, much change is needed to the school system. We're making an assumption that we were doing it right on a day-by-day yeah. basis. So we're gonna take that model and now impose that model at home. And it's just not going to work. Um, uh, I, I, I wrote something. It's it's not going to go anywhere. But <laughs> I said that uh, um, the mistake is we're defining learning as only occurring in a school. So I would strongly recommend, or I did recommend, that we use the cultural institutions, the museums, the public libraries, the zoos, wherever there is a cultural institution, and we look at teaching and learning in a variety of situations, not just schools. We're trying to solve this, this, this safe and healthy problem and space problem by only looking at one building. And I think we need to look at the community. And I think a community is, should be involved in education, not just a school and how we define school. So this may be, if it, for example, if a kid in special ed needs physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. It doesn't have to go in a school. It can go on in a library. It can go on in a museum. So we need, to, we need a different lens on how we look at teaching and learning. And I think maybe that's the frustration.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, because despite federal laws, despite – I don't think it's money. I think, the admitted, I think the federal government needs to provide much more money to the schools, even without the pandemic. But the problem we have is how do we use those dollars? Right. So I, I happen to be a fan. I think teachers, I think we need more teachers. I think we need to increase teacher salaries significantly. I think we have to hire social workers into schools. I think they play a critical role. I think we should have clinical psychologists and you shouldn't have to go into special ed in order to get to your OT. Yeah. You know, so, But we set up different structures, and we fund those structures, and we define teachers by the structures.
0: I'm curious, so- just with your, with your international experience, do you have any, uh, no, uh, any idea just uh, of a way to compare the U.S. structure with some other countries' structures, and, and maybe things that we do good, things that we can do better, based on what you've seen, or has your, uh, your roads haven't led you in that direction?
1: Well, it, that's an interesting question because I've been thinking about that a lot. Okay. And we probably have more in common than, than differences. Um, the, the work I've been doing the last six years has actually been in Romania. And uh, the whole idea is to invest in early childhood education. That's neat. And I said in working with the ministry and uh, the step-by-step organization and the Aspen Institute of Romania, uh, UNICEF. So they're all involved. And it's an interesting dynamic. Research is very, very clear. If you invest when the kids are young, the end product is significant. Kids tend to stay in school, get employed, don't go to
0: jail. Well, a lot of good things happen. And that just, well, as a psychologist, you know, too, the, the brain is just so malleable at those, un, those younger ages.
1: There's nothing more fun than being with a young kid. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing now with my grandkids. I'm playing around with my 2 It's It's incredible. They're innocent. They play. And that and, and to me, play is a critical part to early childhood education. Yes. So in meeting with the people of Romania, one of the things I like, I mean, they're really good friends and really smart people, is trying to say to them, don't set up separate systems. Don't set up a special ed system. Don't exclude any kid, including Roma kids. So don't exclude anybody, but design a system that will enable all kids to be together. Change the attitude early on. If you set up a structure that's separate, you'll fund it, you'll build it, you'll define your teachers, you'll define the curriculum. Remember, I come from an era, John, before you were born, where there was math for the retarded. Yeah. Now I'm seeing math for kids with autism. It's interesting. History is repeating itself. We had a law passed, and I'll come back to Romania, that said least restrictive environment, non-categorical grouping of kids. Yet now we're grouping kids by category. When the the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law was to move away from categorical right. grouping of kids. I, re-
0: I read something that you wrote about just that that phrase, the least restrictive environment. Or maybe you didn't write it, but you're, somehow it was an article that Somehow I was connected to you in, in my research with it. But yeah, that, that term least restrictive environment, like you said, the, the idea behind it was, was very good, it was trying to get kids into the quote unquote normal classroom as much as possible and as, as best as possible. But it's, it's kind of been turned upside down a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that's the question is to ask why and why is it that it hasn't worked. So the least restrictive environment is supposed to be a continuum, supposed to be fluid. And the concept for the for the LRE was actually, I think, nineteen sixty-seven by Evelyn Deno. You're checking my, my memory, but I think it was nineteen sixty seven, Evelyn Denno, Evelyn Denno, and it was called a Cascade of Services. And it started and it was it started with the home residential all the way up to the general ed classroom and the idea is a kid would go into the environment that would enable that kid to acquire the skills they need in that environment and then move fluid keep in mind and this is a really important not you but i think just in principle Mm -hmm. special ed is not a placement special ed is not a label special education is an intervention that's the key. It's not a label. There are 13 disability categories.
0: Yeah. It's a ref- That's not special ed. It's a reframing of the paradigm.
1: Da- so what happens is that the, que- see, and if you ask the, if you view it as an intervention, then you say, what does the kid need? And it could be OT or PT. What does the teacher need? Mm. A lot different. Mm. So I, so, and I think that's what we saw in 1975. That a change in the paradigm, away from a medical model, away from a model that defined the kid by a disability, but asking the question, what does this kid need to learn? What is an appropriate education as defined by a group of people sitting sitting around the table? And if the kid needs OT, PT, speech, counseling, a motorized wheelchair, assistive technology, then the discussion is what are you going to do with all that stuff and how will that enable the kid
0: to acquire a sound basic education? And if the teacher doesn't have the knowledge of how to bridge that gap, then it's all for naught.
1: Yeah. But you see, I I, I take a little bit of the pressure off the teacher and I would say the teacher should be able to say, I don't know what to do. (laughs) And the more there is no, if you have a kid, who has, I'd rather than talk about a label, I'd rather talk about the characteristics of a kid. So now you have a kid who doesn't make eye contact, a kid who has a short attention span, a kid who doesn't doesn't have social emotional skills. That's more important and tells me more about the kid than a label. And the teacher says, I got 10 kids like this in a classroom. What do I do? And I think the best schools that I've seen around the world the best schools are the schools where the teacher has an infrastructure to work out their problems. Matter of fact, one of the best schools I saw, we, took, we went to um, uh, Senegal, okay, uh, uh, and we visited Dakar. And we worked with the school. You know, NYU, we took a group of students. My wife, who's a teacher, also went along. And we worked in schools, in, in classrooms. We didn't speak the language. And the students that we brought over, were, I gave them an assignment. You have to create activities for 400 kids. Exactly. I'm looking for the facial expression. <laughs> and that's how we spent the semester talking about it and all this. And their big concern is they didn't speak Wolof. They didn't speak French. They, kids didn't speak English. What are you going to do? And it had to be a two-hour activity. Okay, so we get, we get to Senegal, we get to Dakar, we get to the school, we visit the classrooms. No whiteboards, no computers. Teacher sits in the front of the class. The kids sang to us in three languages. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden one of the kids, one of my students comes over and says, wow, well, these kids are great. Magic, <laughs> magic. And then what happened is we went into the yard Big yard, dirt, and we played duck, duck, goose. There you go. We, you know, we played hide and seek. We brought along jump ropes, and all this. All of a sudden, they learned that through play. And if you don't label a kid and don't look at what the kid can't do, but you look at the kid as a kid, then all of a sudden, the magic and the science of teaching kick in. So we couldn't even stop after two hours. <laughs> Because everybody was playing and having fun. Now, to me, a school should be a place of fun. It shouldn't be seen as punishment. It should be fun
0: for the kids. It should be fun for the staff. Well, not just for fun, but I mean, they, or, uh, science has shown that you, you remember that information better, too.
1: That's right. Exactly. See, and that's why what I would recommend now,
0: I mean, I, you know, I'm sitting here
1: in the Bronx, so you know, my view of the world is skewed. But <laughs> Everybody's in, no I, matter where you're sitting. I gotta tell you, I, I think that this the, the whole the, the system should turn towards project based learning and teachers should be working with families and parents and how to set up projects and let the kids learn the standards, whatever they may be, yeah. while they're engaged in a project. So you say to a parent, look, you make a make a meal. And you have to do measurements, make a recipe, do a budget, go online, go shopping, do fresh direct, whatever you may do. Let the kid write out the numbers. You can work on any aspect of the Common Core, but engage the family, not in what you do in a school, but in projects that will engage the whole family. Uh, watch, Watch the History Channel. You want the kid to work on reading, put on captions, and you can have words at the bottom. Music. I mean, your field. I mean, you 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 can go wild with the music that's on TV, oh, and yeah. you structure it. You have you know different genre. It's it's incredible what you have access access to. If you say to the family, you're not a school, but you are engaged in teaching and learning. Yeah. And I don't think we've sent that that message clearly. And. um and but I think it's, it's, it's an issue and a message that I'm not sure we've convinced schools that we're engaged in teaching and learning. We're engaged in testing.
0: At least in the last decade, yeah, that, that's the, Yeah, the feeling.:
1: it, I, Exactly. So uh, it, it, so when you said earlier that you know through my writing, yeah, there is a sense of frustration, And, and my colleague and I are writing, and it's, it's coming through, yeah. because we're looking at our research that we did. And it's just being replicated. We look at the numbers of kids. We're seeing policy being recreated prior to the law. And we're saying, what happened? And it's not the research. It's not bad research. It's not utilizing research. It's, it's the you know, structure I, I recommend... and the
0: institution and the laws. Exactly, sure. exactly. And I, I mean, well, I didn't mean to harp on your the, the tone of frustration. I think it's needed well I think it, I, I think it needs to be discussed you see I think a healthy
1: environment um, it's imagine again I don't know your school but how a class is formed which teachers get assigned to which classrooms which kids get assigned to which classes how does a principal or whomever decide which teacher gets which kids and where is the parent voice in all this where is the kid voice do we sit down with the kids and say look it's June, September starts school. Who would you like to be with? Wow. See, that's what was supposed to happen in special ed. You come to an IEP meeting, you sit at a table, and you say, should the kid be in self-contained? Should the kid be in an integrated classroom? Should the kid get resource room? And the law was really neat. The law said, ask, ask, ask the kid. <laughs> you don't have to listen to the kid. <laughs> and, you know, ask the kid, ask the parent, engage in a discussion. Research doesn't give us the answer. People do. That's right. And what scares me, uh, John, is that we've moved into a model now where the category de jour worldwide is autism. Yet if you look at the data in the United States, the two biggest categories are learning disabilities and speech and language impaired. And I probably would argue a lot of kids in those categories don't have disabilities, but they account for probably close to 70% of all kids. The third largest category is called Other Health Impaired, OHI. And the reason that's so large is because they bury attention deficit disorder and attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity under that category. Look at that thinking We took ADD, ADHD, and we put it on the other health-impaired, which creates the perception of sickness. Look at the categories. Autism is is number four on the list at maybe 10%. Yet it gets the most most attention. And it's not saying that there aren't kids who have characteristics, and when you group these characteristics together... It gets that label, but what's happening is that classes are being designed for kids with autism, curriculum for autism, teacher gets training, like applied behavioral analysis for autistic kids. I learned ABA, you know, when I was in school, when I was in graduate school as a way of shaping behavior
0: and changing behavior. But now it's to a label. Yeah and I think the funny thing about that I mean I, I I've heard it said that if you if you know one student with autism you know <clears throat> excuse me if you know one student with autism you know one student with autism there's no two that are the same so why is there why are exactly. we trying to group them all together yeah i mean and go to go back to your point just the the idea of spectrums and there's it's called the autism spectrum because there's such a wide wide range of it so yeah John,
1: but learning is a spectrum. Individuals yes. are a spectrum. Yes. And B is why create a structure. Look, I think one of the things, I wrote this somewhere with Jay, um, the kids get into special ed because general ed says, I can't deal with this kid. Mm-hmm. Now I have this kid in special ed. I do whatever I'm supposed to do. Where's the kid supposed to go? General ed has said, we don't want you. Yeah, It's nuts. Yeah. So what happens is that we have we have systems that are working in parallel, and then we come up with the terminology, and we call it inclusion. And the question is, is it working? But why is the why are we even talking about it? A kid should have access to the general ed classroom, and all the resources that kid needs should be in the gen ed classroom. And if the kid needs a smaller environment for a certain period of time, then maybe we give it, and the kid doesn't. There are kids who do not have disabilities who can use a small classroom. And there are kids, I, I, I think we deal with the variability and not by label and don't create structures and then support those labels.
0: I think that's, it's definitely a, 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 I'm not sure, it's not even a new take. It's just a, it's a reframing of the the idea that there are parallel systems within the education system. Um, now that now that you've brought that concept to light for me I'm going up oh, yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense
1: well I mean look at your field I think uh, the music is the heart music and art are the heart and soul of every culture how can we not even think of ensuring that every kid from pre-k all the way through high school not have access to music and art it to me if you you can talk about uh, what are common factors that every kid should leave school with it should be a value of art and music it's in every culture it's how it we is. communicate it's how we it transcends the
0: universal language
1: exactly and yet it's not seen with the rigidity and the rigor of stem
0: yeah you preach again preaching to the choir here <laughs> uh, yeah you know i you know it, it,
1: it's uh, you know, this is a good catharsis. You know, because I talked to the tree behind me, so now I'm talking to. You. <laughs> so it's sort of neat. Um, uh, but I, I think the frustration comes out of if we had more money, what do we do
0: with it? Yeah, because I mean, to yeah, within the the education world, we kind of you know have our own little bubble of conversations that happen. But that money doesn't come from within that education world. You got to be able to convince. Uh, governments and, and companies and whatever to also invest uh, their resources into it as well. So it, it's definitely a conversation that is larger than just education. Well, one of the things I
1: say to my students and one of the things I would recommend all teachers get involved in is advocacy. Yeah. I teach. I, I believe teachers should do action research on their classroom. Uh, I mean, you can look at research that's done external to schools where people come in and do it in the schools. I think the research should actually happen inside the schools and issues of class size, uh, cultural, diverse teaching. All that should be done within the classroom by teachers or groups of teachers. And I also think it's teachers. uh, I think it's their responsibility is to be advocates. See, you know, there are about maybe four or five people who may listen to me. You know, four people, it could be my wife and my kids. Now, maybe you.
0: (laughs) There you go, those five.
1: That's it. But maybe if if a teacher does, does workshops with colleagues in other schools and in their community, and the teachers can talk to the people who are looking for change and don't understand how to do it. So if teachers say, look, I got your kids, they're in my school. They're in my class. They're good kids. But what we need to do is when you go shopping, read the labels. My favorite labels are the Campbell soup cans. Okay. Because they're because they cover every single letter of the alphabet.
0: <laughs> you know, so you know, you Not just you, because you, it's alphabet soup either. <laughs>
1: exactly. I mean it's great. you can even buy the alphabet, but shopping to me is one of the all-time great activities. And uh, because you can do it by uh, by ethnicity, you can do it by language, you can do it by numbers. It's phenomenal shopping. Um, but if teachers communicate that to parents at a parent meeting, what parents can do at home with their kids, yeah. it's more powerful than if it came from a researcher sitting somewhere sure. not connected to that to that school, right. so teachers play not only a critical role in pedagogy, without a question, but I think there's a broader responsibility, and that is advocacy in changing people's attitudes.
0: Sure, and certainly, I mean the the goal of this podcast is to bring some of that research to teachers in in that easy to easy to consume, easy to implement way, so that they can then you know go go about having those conversations with parents and with their colleagues, and like you said, there's there's credibility involved with that when it's coming from a person and not from a page or something like that. So. um,
1: Look, I think one of the exciting things teachers can do or schools can do is sit down and put together a research agenda. So imagine you get a group of teachers across grades, sitting down and making out a list of research questions.
0: What do we want to find out about our school? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, how do we group kids? How many kids should be in a classroom? Uh, When I go into a school, I like to ask the kindergarten teacher, what is the fifth to sixth grade teacher doing? And then ask the fifth to sixth grade teacher, do you know what the kindergarten teacher? So when you talk about integration, all the research shows that the best instructional programs, there is a coherency and a consistency to instruction. Well, if I don't know what's going on in the lower grades, Wow, so you so the question I mean that would be an example of a question, and then you do action research to answer that question those whatever questions are generated uh, within the school. Teachers are very powerful change agents they sh- they cannot and should not become a prisoner of their classroom. Mm. And that scares me when I see some of that stuff,
0: yeah. This was this has been a fantastic conversation. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um yeah, we didn't we didn't I my original thought was that we would dive a little bit more into special education, but I think the just the conversation of the educational world is it, it's like you said, it it shouldn't be the railroad of here's here's normal education, here's special education, here's literacy, and you know, it it is one big conversation, at least it, it should be that way. So I appreciate you ta- just, Yeah, go for it. I, I'm sorry, John, for cutting off, but I, 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 now I feel guilty.
1: Let me leave you at least with this thought. <laughs> Research in the area of special ed, okay. regardless of type of disability or degree of disability, has clearly demonstrated kids can learn. That's the most important thing I can tell you, is that there's not a kid. And I've taught kids to blink an eye. I've taught kids to bend a finger. I've worked with kids who had self-stimulating behavior, institutional type behavior, takes time, takes support. There's not a kid, not a kid that can't learn. So, and part two to special. it's the intervention. Special it is is an intervention, not by disability. There are certain interventions that are more efficient and more effective based on certain characteristics that define a group of kids. But you start with the characteristics of the kid, not with the label that this kid has. Yeah. And uh, after that, I think special ed and general ed should have a lot in common. I would love general ed to sit down and general ed teachers to say, hey, I got a kid of 30 kids. What do I do? How do I group them? Same questions we ask in special ed. How do I individualize instruction? How do I do a task analysis? How do I integrate a kid who's two years behind in reading into my STEM activity? Those are good pedagogical questions that don't belong to special ed. That's the problem.
0: Yep. That's yeah. And like I've heard it said what's good for students with special needs is good for all students. So why limit it?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, To wrap up then, uh, why don't we move over to our exit ticket questions? These are the same four questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show. So one is, do you have any book recommendations for teachers to go read?
1: Well, great question. Um, uh, One of my favorite authors in the field of education is Diane Ravitch, and I would recommend Slaying Goliath, her last book.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And I think that, um, I think it's critical to understand the history to what's happened with education, privatization. Uh, I'm a strong advocate of public school education. And I think it would be great for teachers to have an understanding of the politics underlying reform. And I think it begs the question, when you read the book, despite years of enormous investment by a lot of lot of rich people (laughs) using their criterion for success, the standardized test, they're flat. There's been no change, despite their reform. And I think underlying her writing is that I think reform is best by the people who are responsible for implementing the reform, which I think it belongs to these teachers, and the staff at schools. So I think that would be a good read for the teachers.
0: All right. I will, the, just the, the title itself is very captivating. So um, yeah, we will link, uh, link that in the show notes. Uh, what about another uh, resource, either online or hard copy, uh, that you would recommend teachers go check out, maybe specifically uh, in your field?
1: I, 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 that, that's a good question. I think it's I think teachers should you, be in touch with Education Week. I think they should get a subscription many many times it's not it's not it's free, but I would use um, uh, the Chronicle of Education, Education Week uh, and and ad, advocates for children. See, I think that there are now because of the technology. there I get weekly printouts, even if they don't want to get anything, if they go on to Google and they put in certain words, Every day, so I have special ed. So every day I get a note notification twice a day, actually, about any article that happened that has the word special ed in it. Hmm. So what I would recommend is that teachers read. They sometimes they tend to stop when they graduate their their (laughs) university. I think the reading should continue, and if they don't want to invest, I would get a newsletter uh, or I would Google and get a Google alert. In, in special education.
0: Yeah, I, I do like, uh, I, I subscribe to a couple newsletters um, and what I really like about them is that you you kind of get a glimpse of the article before you invest the entire time into reading the whole thing. So you kind of, right. you get a little uh, idea of what it's going to be and, and whether or not you want to invest your time into it because time is limited and we all, exactly. all know that. So um, yeah, that, those are great. Uh, we will link those as well. Uh, what about... Question number three: uh, What advice would you give teachers? What what one piece of advice do you want to give teachers, maybe uh, particularly those who are early in their careers?
1: I don't know if I could limit it to one. That's all right. Uh, but I, I I think it's how the teacher perceives themselves that they are change agents, they're advocates, and they have to be the smartest people at the table. And therefore, the learning should never stop. And if they ever feel that they don't know enough, they're right. <laughs> and they have a responsibility to keep on learning. I, that's, so I, I think teaching, and I would say to teachers, and it's what I've been doing for a very, very long time, i think they're the heart and soul of a society and with enormous responsibilities and i would want the teachers to hold on to that responsibility and not relinquish it but if they feel that they it's a losing battle for them to take a step back speak to colleagues don't give in to the fresh don't give in to the frustration yeah that's what I, that's the message.
0: Yeah. And as soon as you, the, the sooner you can get uh, either colleagues, either in person or online, just a community of, of people that have your back uh, both with situationally and just uh, emotionally um, to keep you going. Cause we need good teachers. And it's unfortunate how early a lot of them exit the profession. So. Um, and
1: I worry about the ones who should have left and didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Therefore, they stay in the classroom. It doesn't mean that they're bad people but they stop the collaboration, they stop the learning, they define their responsibility only by their classroom. And I think a teacher's responsibility is to a whole school. And uh, you don't want to become a prisoner of that classroom. And you use the really very, very important word, and that's community. I believe each school is its own community. Uh, And uh, one of the things in educational research that's very difficult is that you can't do it in one school and assume another school is going to do right. it. You can't do it in one class and assume all third yep. grade classes are the same. So I, I, I think the idea that a school is a community. I think action research. I think professional development within schools. I mean, I, I have a—it's not one of our topics—but uh, I wouldn't go to outside consultants. What I would do is, if I want to teach science STEM in the elementary school, I'd bring in a high school teacher in the district.
0: Hmm.
1: so i believe you 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 build your infrastructure now you can always have an outside person come in as a facilitator moderator sure. to maybe train the trainer but why not go to my high school staff and have them come in and they're certified in their content area do the training at the elementary school in stem they know the system they know the kids they know the families wow
0: yeah and then you know four or five years later the kids will turn around and See those teachers.
1: (laughs) Now you got it. See, what you do is you build a community of learners, teachers and learners. Yeah. Strange ideas.
0: Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And just the last one then is um, if anybody wants to reach out to you, where would be the best place to send them?
1: Best place. I'll give you my email. Um, If that's okay. Sure. It's Mark, M-A-R-K dot alter, A-L-T-E-R at NYU dot edu
0: all right and we will make sure to link that in the show notes as well so you can go check it out there mark alter thank you so much for taking the time uh fantastic conversation Uh, fantastic thank you be well john all right thank you you too boy i don't know about you but this conversation definitely got me thinking about my current position uh and some of the things that i can start to change about what i do particularly when he talked about the uh, the concept of project-based learning, right? And how uh, there's this underlying uh, like assumption, I guess, that learning happens in school. And boy, has that belief been challenged uh, as we deal with this COVID-19 pandemic, right? We're kind of forced into trying to teach from uh, online or hybrid or whatever it is. So this idea that learning doesn't happen in school, Um, And and trying to partner with parents and develop these projects that kids can take what they learn in school, but then apply it to life outside of school, right? So, here's how your learning exists in the world. That connection is so, so powerful. Um, And obviously, that wasn't the only thing that he talked about, though, right? So, if you felt challenged by something else or you heard something and a light bulb went off uh, or it's something in your heart, don't limit this learning to just yourself, right? That's the that's the point. Go ahead and share this episode with a colleague or, or maybe even your special education teachers just to see what they have to say about the conversation. Because I really do believe that this, uh, what Dr. Mark Alter is talking about is something that needs to be talked about a lot more. So if you can help me out by sharing this episode, um, that would just be amazing. But until next time, just do what you do best. Go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabbadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, Please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabbadoo Education Podcast.